0: everyone, and welcome to Episode 17 of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley. I'm your host, and this is a show where nearly each and every episode, we look at Superman and Batman team-ups from throughout the years, with those team-ups being mostly chosen at random from the pages of World's Finest Comics. This episode, I'm joined by another special guest. So it is my great pleasure to welcome to the podcast uh, the host of one of the longest running Superman podcasts out there, Mr. Billy Hogan.
1: Hi Michael, thanks for having
0: me uh, on your ep- uh, podcast today. Well, thanks for coming. Um, shortly after I started the show, Billy messaged me and said that he'd like to come on and talk come on sometime and talk about uh, what we're going to be looking at this episode, which is world's finest comics number 172. So Billy, and this might be easier to answer later on in the show, but if you can do so without spoiling the, sh- uh, spoiling the story, what is it about this particular story that made you want to come on and talk about it?: Well, it's just the uh, well first of all, it's an imaginary story which uh,
1: is one of my favorite aspects of the Silver Age of comic books, you know, along with the 80-page giants they used to have for a quarter back mm-hmm. then.
0: Alright. Yeah, I'm actually kind of excited about it, because accepting the Super Sons, which kind of has an asterisk by it, this is the first imaginary story we've had on the show, and it's, it's actually a pretty good one. Um, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, World's Finest Comics number 172 was released on October 26th, 1967. It's got a December 1967 cover date and 32 pages for the price of 12 cents. The issue was edited by Mort Weisinger and has a cover by Kurt Swan and George Klein. And just as an aside, this is very near the end of Klein's time with DC, because he was one of the artists that was, well, a nice way to put it was that they were eased out of the company in early 1968. Uh, Klein then went to work for Marvel for about a year and then uh, died shortly thereafter. But Getting back to happier times with our comics, our cover shows a young Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne clinking a toast at a dinner table as Ma and Pa Kent smile in the background. And behind them all, we see visions of a costumed and fully grown Superman and Batman watching on with pride. And the cover copy gets right to the premise, telling us that this is an imaginary story revealing what would have happened if orphan Bruce Wayne had also been adopted by the Kents. So what do you think about this cover?
1: If, uh, you know, Kurt Swan has been called, I, I think, kind of a Norman Rockwell of comics. And this is one of those covers that kind of proves that point. It kind of reminds me of Norman Rockwell's painting of the famous painting of the family with the uh, mother or grandmother putting down the Christmas, the Thanksgiving turkey or mm-hmm. about to carve the you know, the turkey. So it's kind of very homey, uh Cover, you know, certainly uh, kind of sentimental and it uh, really has stood out when I think of the world's finest stories I've read, you know, growing up.
0: Yeah. I like it too. Um, it, it's no slight meant to swan or climb because it's a solid outing from them both, but I think the real strength here lies in the premise promised by the cover rather than the art itself. But like you said, it is a very kind of traditional uh, homey feel to the cover. Uh, So turning inside, our 18-page tale was written by Jim Shooter, who was only 16 when this was published. And the art is by the cover team of Kurt Swan and George Klein. Since before, Romulus and Remus' brothers have had their disagreements. But now, in this great imaginary tale, you're going to see the most startling scrap of all, as Superman tangles with Batman in... Superman and Batman Brothers. And our story opens with two familiar scenes. Kal-El's rocket escaping the dying planet Krypton, and the tragic murders of (coughs) Thomas and Martha Wayne. Months after the death of the Waynes, while Superboy is fighting a robot in a charity boxing match, Jonathan and Martha Kent are visited by an agent from Smallville Orphanage, who says they've done such a good job with their adopted son, the orphanage wants them to adopt another a young boy who watched his parents murdered before his eyes. Martha initially is reluctant, but eventually agrees, and soon, a young Clark Kent is introduced to his new adopted brother, Bruce Wayne. Despite that these two, in a a non-imaginary context, are destined to become the world's finest heroes, here, their younger selves don't immediately hit it off. In the weeks that follow, the Boy of Steel seems to be a bit jealous, when Bruce is able to excel in all his classes, while Clark has to hold back for fear of revealing his super alter ego. Clark also notices that Bruce is very studious, a bit self involved, and seems to have some pent up anger, which becomes most apparent when Bruce beats up a schoolyard bully. Clark is soon distracted by a band of super criminals using tanks in an attempt to hold up the Smallville Bank. While the Boy of Tomorrow takes care of the would be robbers, he notices Bruce using Bruce using a camera to take photos of the crooks. Later that night, Clark goes through Bruce's room and finds snapshots of the criminals, notes on their techniques, and dozens of books about crime and criminals. A few nights later, Clark sees Bruce sewing a blue-cowled costume, similar to those worn by the bank robbers, and he begins to worry that his adopted brother might have turned to a life of crime. A few nights later, believing everyone in the house asleep, Bruce slips away, clad in what we recognize as the now-famous costume of the Batman. He soon returns with a small sack of gems, convincing Clark that his brother has become a thief. As Bruce makes his way through the house, he stumbles, inadvertently revealing a closet full of Superboy robots. With no other choice, Superboy confronts his adopted brother, and a scuffle between the two ensues. Bruce eventually pulls from his belt a piece of kryptonite, which he uses to hold the boy of steel at bay, and then puts it safely away, proving he's no murderer, just as he's no thief. Bruce explains the costume, the jewels, are all part of his war against criminals, like those who killed his parents. He had stopped a gang of jewel thieves that night, and planned to return the gems to their rightful owners the next day. Knowing he was wrong about Bruce's goals, Clark replies he can't possibly let Bruce keep battling crime, at least not alone and Clark extends his hand to his brother, and now partner. Part 2. Tragedy Strikes Twice Superboy and Batboy begin their battle in crime as the new World's Finest. On Bruce's 21st birthday, he inherits Wayne Manor and moves to Gotham City. He's initially reluctant about the move, but the choice becomes easy when Ma, Pa, and Clark all move to Gotham as well, with the latter becoming a reporter for the Gotham Gazette. Soon, Lex Luthor attacks the city. Superman quickly defeats the bald villain, but days later, Luthor breaks free from his prison, Beric swearing vengeance. While Superman is forced to deal with the near meltdown at an atomic power plant in Oak City, Batman scours the city for the criminal, finally learning that Luthor has taken hostages at a charity bazaar. Batman arrives at the bazaar and is taunted by the criminal into entering a trap-laden labyrinth in order to save a pair of nobodies from an explosive device a pair of nobodies Batman-knows-better as Ma and Pa Kent, who just happened to be at the bazaar when Luthor struck. The Dark Knight cautiously makes his way through the maze. He fends off heat rays, an army of androids, androids, antimatter blasts, and atomic death traps, deftly avoiding and defeating each one in test after test of man versus machine, slowly inching his way closer and closer to his adopted parents. He withstands a blast ray near the final door and begins using acid from his utility belt to cut through it. Desperate, Luthor unleashes his bomb early, causing a tremendous explosion. But as the smoke clears, the Dark Knight still stands and attacks Luthor with furious anger. Striking blow after blow, Batman beats the criminal down until authorities arrive. The officers lament they were unable to save the two hostages, but Batman has no reply, save tears. Later. Batman rejoins Superman as they mourn their parents. The loss of a second set of parents at the hands of criminals is too much for the Dark Knight, who says he's giving up his career as Batman and leaving the city to find some place he can finally be at peace. Knowing he can't let his brother waste his talents, Superman grabs his brother, speeding through the time barrier into the future. There, he petitions his old friend Cosmic Man for a favor. And our tale ends with the world's finest continuing their crime-fighting careers on separate paths. Superman in the present and Batman, 1,000 years in the future, as a flight ring-wearing member of the Legion of Superheroes. The end. So what do you think about this story, Billy?
1: I enjoyed it as a kid in the 60s when I read it, and I still enjoy it. Although, you know, you... Uh, Reading it now, you know, as an adult, you do pick up on some of the Silver Age quirks Mm -hmm. of the story, but it really doesn't take away from my enjoyment uh, of the tale.
0: Yeah. I loved this the first time I read it, but I had forgotten how much I loved it until I read it again for the show. I think my biggest complaint about it is that it isn't long enough, (laughs) which which is kind of a good problem to have, Um, and we'll get into the page-by-page here in just a few seconds, but – as I was thinking about what I liked and what I didn't like, the majority of the time, what I didn't like started with, you know, I would have liked to have seen something. So, uh, but starting on page one, my only note for the splash page is that it's, it's not all too common to see Clark with the spit curl and the glasses. Yeah, that's the, true. The spit curl is one of the, the, the things that they use to distinguish between the two. It's Clark and Superman, or, or Superboy as it is here.
1: Well, plus he did get uh, kind of woken out of
0: bed. Right. Uh, page two, Superboy fighting a robot, and already I'm sold. Uh, even though it's a charity boxing match, Superman fighting a robot is is always cool in my book. Yeah,
1: me too. Just uh, uh, really kind of an action-packed scene, especially the one where you see – Superboy zipping around so fast that, uh, he shows up more than, you can see more than one of them as he hits the robot in
0: different places. Yeah, yeah, that's on, that's over on page three, and I love that panel, and then the next panel of Superman, uh, it's kind of like a, a view from behind the robot, but Superman or Superboy is busting through the robot, and all you see is, uh, a big explosion with the robot pieces flying out, and and Superboy basically busting through the explosion. It's a really, a really cool panel. The art through the whole story is fantastic to me.
1: Yeah, it's really Kurt Swan at a, at the peak of his mm-hmm.
0: um, art talent. Yeah, I'm a little confused though on page three, why this woman is coming from the Smallville orphanage. And I could explain it away. That's saying that all the orphanages are. Orphanages are networked or, or something like that, but it's, it's just a bit odd to me.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I didn't even pick up on that. Um, you know, it makes you wonder okay, where is Smallville in relation to Gotham City? Yeah.
0: yeah. And it also occurs to me that uh, this would be a more difficult story to tell using a post crisis context because the Kents passed Clark off as their natural son there. Yeah. Um, pages four and five... Uh, this is one, quote-unquote, problem I had with the story, be- because I wish they could have developed more the relationship between Clark and Bruce. Um, they meet in one panel on page four, and then we don't see them interacting at all until over on page nine, which is where Clark confronts Bruce. So... A lot of the relationship relies on the fact that we the readers know that in, you know, the so called real universe, uh these two are good friends, so they're they'd naturally be good friends here too. But I, I just would have liked to seen, you know, more uh development of that relationship in this story.
1: Yeah, although I guess part of that you know, kind of helped along with uh Clark's internal dialogue as he observes his new adopted brother. Plus, he kind of have to admit it. You know, it would be kind of awkward for someone to come home and find that their parents have uh, adopted someone else. Yeah. Uh,
0: around the same age. Yeah, that could be. That could take some getting used to. Um, and kind of on a similar note, I would have liked to have seen some exploration of how having the Kents in his life changed Bruce from how he is, you know, again in the so-called real universe, Um, because that, I I think that would definitely have a huge effect on Bruce, having two loving and caring adoptive parents compared to just having Alfred. Um, And we kind of see that Bruce isn't as dark, but it's a lot of it is stuff that we infer and it's never really um, explored too much. And I can't really blame Shooter for that too much, because, you know, he only had so many pages to work with, and he does cram a lot into those. But you know, and, and at the end of the day, it's not it's not a big issue. But I just think the story would have benefited it, you know, had it had the room to explore those things a little more. Yeah,
1: it's just, yeah. It's one thing about the Silver Age stories. Uh, a lot of them they pack a lot into them because there's not that many continuing stories. Right. But they just touch on the highlights of the plot a lot of times
0: and just as a side note for the math fans out there uh, at the bottom of page 4 we see Clark and Bruce in the classroom and the teacher has written something on the uh, chalkboard and that writing actually is uh, a real formula it's talking about something called elastic modulus which is a formula for determining how much something will distort uh, elastically when you apply force to it and that's pretty much all I can tell you about it. But I just thought that was interesting that they would actually uh, use a real equation rather than you know just scribbles.
1: You know, I ne- I've never uh, thought to check that out and see if that's real or if it's just uh, something the comic book writer or artist came up with just to put something on the chalkboard.
0: <laughs> well, confession, I had to Google it. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's usually how I kind of learn about a little you know. Easter eggs or little things like that.
0: Yeah. Um, page six, it amuses me that these guys are using uh, three tanks to rob a tiny little bank in Smallville, USA. Um, living in a small town, probably, pro- probably bigger than Smallville, but you know, it would take quite a while to get here in, in the tank. Um, pages seven and eight, even given my earlier comments that I wanted to see their relationship explored more this was a nice way to take the story. Um, I, I think it would have been very easy to just find some reason for Bruce to, to become Batboy with Clark in on it from the start. But I like that they played up some drama with it. Um, even though we know what's going on with Bruce, it was nice to see Clark puzzle it out. And given that this is an imaginary story, I guess it's possible that Bruce could, could have gone on to a life of crime. So, you know, nothing sure, but Again, Shooter only had, you know... Had he had had more room to play with, I think he could have expanded upon that some, but but I did like the way they went with it.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: And I also like that, even though it's maybe a a little forced and done only to provoke conflict between the two characters, I like that we see Bruce not being altogether fully equipped and, and completely in control that the character would be You know, when he's an adult. You know, uh, when he's coming through the window, he creaks the windowsill, which wakes Clark up. He stumbles in the hall, you know, and and bringing the jewels back to the house wasn't the smartest move to begin with. And it just (laughs) shows that Bruce is kind of young and and new at the whole crime-fighting thing. Uh, Page 9, my only note is, nice pajamas, Clark. (laughs) Uh, Page 10, again, this is something, I guess shooter didn't really have room for but I would like to know why or how Bruce chose to, mo- to why or how he chose a bat to model his costume after um, the scene of Batman in the study or Bruce in the study with the bat crashing through the window is such an iconic and recurring element of the Batman story and we didn't get that here so why a bat um, Bruce having kryptonite is a bit forced But again, it's not not a big deal, and it's definitely not a story-breaker for me. Um, In fact, as I thought about it more, it kind of makes sense, because, you know, living in Smallville, he would obviously know, but know about Superboy, so the Batman we know is always prepared for stuff, so having Kryptonite might make sense, I guess, a little bit. But but anyway, page 12, again, kind of going back to what I said earlier, I would have liked to have seen more of these two uh, working together and growing as a team because you really... You you just really don't get a, a strong sense of, of friendship or uh, brotherliness, if that's a word, uh, between the two characters. But unfortunately, there just wasn't room in the story. Uh, page 13. These couple panels here of uh, Superman and Batman fighting Lex in his giant battle robot suit are... are Fantastic! Just a lot of action, and like you said earlier, with the panels of uh, Superboy fighting the uh, the robot, it really shows uh, Kurt Swan at his artistic peak. Um, I didn't mention it in my synopsis, but there's a footnote here that Lex did not grow up in Smallville, and it's kind of convenient that that happens in the story, and it. It really bugs me, (laughs) because that was such a big part of Superman's mythology at this time. But, again, even though I am uh, irritated by it, I understand why Shooter did it, and it's not really a story-breaker for me. So He really just needed about twice as many pages for this story, or or maybe to make it a two-parter. I don't know. Uh, Page 14, the point about Lex rigging a a catastrophe in another city to draw Superman away is actually pretty brilliant. And I'm really glad they mentioned, it that, mentioned that it was Lex who caused it rather than, than it just being a, you know, a conveniently random happenstance. Uh, pages 15 to 17, uh, I love, love, love these pages. Um, it, it's dynamic and dramatic, and there's action and emotion. It's just really, really great. You've got Batman being awesome and Luthor being mustache-twirlingly evil, and there's lasers and robots and a great fight, and and I, this is where I think I fail as a podcaster, because I don't think my synopsizing skills are good enough that it really does scenes like this justice, because this scene, up until here, it was an enjoyable story, but this scene makes the story great, so.
1: Yeah, well, I I think. I think you just have to read the story to get the full impact. I don't think there's any if you had a perfect command of the English
0: language, uh, I don't think you could do do it justice. Yeah. Um, And also on the art, I've heard a lot of people criticize Swan's ability to draw action. And for those who do, I want to show them these pages. No, they're not Jack Kirby dynamic, but they are really, really great. Um, The panels where Batman is laying into Luthor with just a barrage of punches, that's as good as almost anything else you would find in this era of DC Comics.
1: Well, yeah, plus you have to take into account that DC was a more conservative company, Mm -hmm. and so they were writing more for kids anyway. So Kurt Swan's action scenes are going to be more subdued than what, you know, people reading modern comic books would be used to. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think where, you know, he may lack in comparison to current comics as far as his depiction of action, um, I think he excels at showing the emotional core of the scene – which I think some modern comic book artists uh, kind of fall short in.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. And page 18, I love the ending. It's really rushed and, it's in a, and another sign that Shooter needed more pages, but it's a clever idea, and I just love the idea of Batman living in the future with the Legion of Superheroes, and I'm kind of sad that we never got to see a sequel or, or more stories with that idea.
1: Yeah, me too. Of course, especially for me, since after Superman, my favorite character, a group of characters is the Legion. Mm -hmm. So it would have been fun to see more imaginary stories uh, following up Batman in the 30th century.
0: So on that last panel, is that a – I like the Legion, but my knowledge of – they're more obscure villains is, is sort of uh, low. So this guy in the purple, is that a Legion villain or is he just a random costumed criminal?
1: Um, I'm not, as much as I love the Legion, I'm not um, as expert on Legion villains or Legion trivia like the guys uh, that do the uh, Legion of Substitute podcasters mm-hmm. uh, who, they, who do um, their Podcast is specifically about the Legion. It just—it's no one I've ever seen before. It just seems like a you know random villain, right? All right. Well, did you have any more comments on this? Um, Yeah. uh, Starting on page two, I noticed that uh, when looking at the origin, when they showed the origins of the two. World's Finest Hero, Superman's origin took one panel, you know, showing the rocket from uh, flying from the Krypton as it explodes, and Batman needed uh, three panels to show his origin when uh, young Bruce sees his uh, uh, parents gunned down uh, hmm. on the sidewalk. That's a good point. And uh, on the last panel of the page, we when I was uh, rereading. The story to prep for uh, you know being on this episode, it kind of made me think that Superboy was playing Rock'em, Sockam robots, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is the, kind of a, a game from my uh, my childhood. Um, and on the final two panels of page three, this is something I didn't pick up on when I read it as a kid because I uh, there are no credits in the story. Uh, as far as the creators, writer, the writer and artist, uh, the social worker is uh, – her name is Mrs. Swan. And uh, some years back, uh, I have got a book called Kurt Swan, A Life in Comics um, written by Eddie Zeno and published by uh, Vanguard. And there's a picture of Kurt Swan's wife when she's – when they're kind of older – but it makes me wonder if he modeled or named the um, or maybe Jim Shooter um, named the uh, the social worker after Kurt Swan's wife or maybe the idea came from Kurt Swan himself but i could see even though the picture in the book shows Kurt Swan's wife you know much older that i could see her being the model for Mrs. Swan in this story,
0: huh? I've only seen one picture of his wife, and she was uh, she was pretty old because it, it, when she passed away, they had a little you know headshot of her uh, when I saw the obit online. Um, but yeah, she. I mean, it, the only thing I remember is that she had dark hair. But it's. I guess it's possible he drew his wife into the story. That's kind of a neat idea. Or a yeah. Neat thing to look for.
1: And on the third panel of page four, when is after Bruce has been uh, taken to the uh, Kent home and Superboy flies into his bedroom window and Pa Kent tells him not to fly that way again, it seemed like uh, by this time the idea of Superboy having a tunnel in the basement to fly in and out of the Kent home to avoid – exposing his secret identity has already been established, but maybe uh, well, first of all, it's an imaginary story, so you know, they don't have to obviously follow the normal continuity, or maybe Jim Shooter just may not have been aware of it. Yeah.
0: Uh, um well if Lex Luthor's not gonna grow up in Smallville, maybe he doesn't have tunnels either.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. And on uh, panel four, you know, Clark, in a way, is kind of only thinking about himself, but then, um, you know, I kind of understand his concern about protecting his secret identity, especially if he's got to share his bedroom with Bruce. Uh, plus, you know, it had to be quite a shock to come home, uh, find his parents had adopted uh, another teen w- without ha- any prior conversation about. Uh, the idea with Clark. Yeah. And um, I did like uh, the scenes, at the following panels where Clark, I don't know if it's jealousy or maybe it's like maybe a combination of jealousy and admiration when he sees that, you know, Bruce doesn't have to hold back. You know, he's like the brain in the class and he's also able to wipe the floor with the, uh, cl- the, the school bully.
0: Who looks and, a lot like Pete Ross.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, he certainly is, you know, Pete Ross – because he – I think he
0: did have blonde hair, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It's not Pete Ross because they call him Benny later on in the page there, but – And on uh, page six, when you
1: see the tanks uh, attacking the Smallville Bank, I would, I was just – Part of the fun of reading these stories is kind of overthink them, and I was trying to picture these tanks trying to escape the law. I mean, so I looked online, and I think the the current uh, type of tank is that the army uses is the um, oh, where uh, I lost my place in my notes um, is the Abrams M1 tank and the top speed is uh, about 60 miles an hour <laughs> so on the, it's kind of kind of hard to think of how it would really work because on the one hand yeah police car have no problem out running but then you got the situation where the tank could probably just run over and crush the uh, police car to get away so maybe it even's out yeah and um you know, like you, uh, it was interesting to follow um, to follow Clark with his – when he, he's kind of suspicious about Bruce's interest in, first of all, the the uh, mask or you know, cowls that the criminals are wearing and his interest in books on crime. Um, and, you know – then when we see Bruce uh, working on it, on his costume, you know, who knew that, uh, well, either he, he couldn't have Ma Kent make it, so I guess uh, you know, not only is he smart in school, but Bruce is uh, quite the tailor. <laughs> and one thing on page nine, after the scene where uh, Clark confronts Bruce, and they have their uh, he kind of really roughs them up a bit. How come they didn't wake up, Mon Kent?
0: Yeah, that's a good point because they are kind of. I mean, they are getting pretty rough and messing up the rug and the, everything else.
1: Yeah, you um, know, page eleven. Yeah, the name Bat Boy doesn't exactly strike. Doesn't seem to strike fear in. Uh, The superstitious, cowardly lot of criminals, but I guess it works in Smallville.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad they didn't um, have him be Robin and then later change to Batman because I liked seeing Superboy and Batboy together, even though Batboy is a silly name.
1: Yeah, although I think in the uh, John Byrne, the first four-issue miniseries he did of Superman and Batman called Mm Generations… I think in the last volume, they did a flashback of before they became Superman and Batman, respectively, and I think he did have Bruce Wayne dressed up as Robin, yeah, as first superhero name. And when you mention about when uh Bruce brought the jewels home, uh, I can understand him want to keep the jewels secure. But There are two things about this scene. First of all, I guess uh, Smallville doesn't have 24-hour police uh, uh, working round-the-clock shifts uh, because he just ties them up and leaves them at the door of the police department, and then when he takes the uh, jewels home with him… You know, it kind of destroys the chain of evidence, which I don't know much about law enforcement, but I think one of the concerns is protecting the integrity of the chain of evidence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you go to court, uh, the defense can't challenge that the evidence can be contaminated. As It kind of gives the criminals the idea, well, you know… they could give them an alibi that they can say, "Well, Batman was in on it, or whatever," to try to g- get themselves out of uh, a jail sentence or a, a lesser sentence. Right. And um, it's kind of interesting to see Clark working for the Gotham Gazette instead of the Daily Planet. Um, and on, you know, when we see Lex Luthor. Uh, you mentioned the node the um, narration note about Lex Luthor not growing up in Smallville, uh, in this story at least. Um, but Lex also looks a lot older at this point, with as you know, when Clark and Bruce are teens, and uh. he's already a grown man, and he's certainly a lot more svelte than. Lex Luthor is in the regular Superman continuity. Good point. And on the final page of uh, final panel of page 13 when uh, Clark and Bruce beg off uh, going with Ma and Pa Kent to the the Bazaar because they heard the news on the radio that Lex Luthor had escaped jail. Ma Kent told them, well, you're excused then. I would think that at this point, you know, Clark and Bruce are adults. I think they're a bit too old to ask their parents for permission to go out and do their superhero duty. But I guess maybe Ma and Pa Kent are kind of old fashioned parents. And on um, page 14, uh, when we see Clark and Bruce kind of change their superhero costumes, I was think as I was reading the story, preparing for you know this uh, episode. I was thinking, gee, no, uh, going down the bat poles to the Bat Cave for uh, Clark and Bruce. Um, and when uh, Batman goes to the Cherry Bazaar. We see Lex Luthor and some type of looks like a flying saucer like device. Um, Now, I remember Mark Wade one time um, wrote or talked about how, you know, in the Silver Age, you have these supervillains with these giant robots to attack banks. And you wonder, you know, where do they get the money to make these, you know, Obviously very expensive robots, and are they going to get enough from the you know, <laughs> robbing the bank to pay for their robot? Yeah. And you have to wonder – the story is kind of a good illustration of the same point because when Superman and Batman first capture Lex Luthor, he's robbing a, a fur warehouse where it, inside a giant machine or tanker. Or, Something with uh metallic tentacles. And then in this one he has he's uh kidnapping pe- two people from the charity bazaar and then some type of flying saucer. I mean, is there going to I mean, was he expecting a lot of valuables? Uh, but
0: those those pies that Ma beg, Ma can't bake, yeah. those are priceless. Yeah, especially if they're rhubarb. <laughs> But
1: you know, these are, you know, it's kind of fun to overthink yeah. stories like this. But, like you, the emotional core of the story is the very end when uh, Batman runs or Batboy runs the gauntlet. Well, he's Batman by this point. When Batman runs Luther's gauntlet and seeing uh, Luther's response as he, his unbelief that batman is beating his every trap uh he, he he's just so astonished by you know batman's uh, his ability to outthink luthor I, I almost think expect luthor to say it's inconceivable <laughs> like the guy from uh, the movie princess bride yeah. but th- at the end when Super- when batman walks out of the uh, the trap, his costumes shredded, and uh, you know the police take Luthor into custody, and we in the background, and in the foreground, all we see is Batman and tears running down his face. Uh, that's really the emotional core of the story, and I think that's what makes it one of those timeless Silver Age stories. Oh yeah, and then you know on page eighteen. I think this is kind of where we see Superman – even though a lot of – I think I agree with you. A lot of the, um, the the relationship developing between Clark and Bruce becoming very close happens kind of between panels. Um, we see Superman – Concern for his adopted brother and getting the inspiration to uh, wrap Batman in his indestructible cape, which is another classic uh, Silver Age scene of, you know, Superman carrying someone, wrapping them in his indestructible cape to protect them from the elements and the, um, you know, air friction while he's flying them and taking them to the 30th century so he can kind of, yeah, he's still on Earth, but. It's almost might as well be an alien planet because there's nothing on there to remind him of what he's lost. Right. And going back to when they're talking, um, you know, after mompa can't die, they're they have Superman and Batman have a conversation on a cliff overlooking I which I assume is metropolis, and Batman says, You don't understand, you know, um how I feel because, you know, that's two sets of parents I've lost. Well, you know, Superman can say the same thing. Yeah. But I, then, sorry, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. But then I thought, well, maybe true. Superman did lose both two sets of parents. But, you know, he, when he came from Krypton, he was just a baby. So unless you pick up the Silver Age trope that you know, Kal-El had the super memory that he could remember his life on Krypton even when he was a baby then he he really otherwise he really wouldn't remember his Kryptonian parents Right. but Bruce lost both parents as a teen and uh, as an adult lost his adopted parents so I can understand his perspective and um, finally um, I looked it up on Mike's Mason World of DC Comics. I think the Adult Legion of Superheroes appeared seven times, and this was the sixth appearance. It was the next to last appearance hmm. uh, of of the Adult Legion.
0: Interesting. What was? Well, we can look at the last one later. Um, yeah, I was. I, I I had the same kind of thought as you did regarding superman also losing a second set of parents i think that often gets overlooked by writers because uh um, you know super superman losing his parents didn't define the character the way the murder of the waynes did for batman so i think a lot of times readers and or sorry writers and as well as readers overlook that when it comes to what makes up the character um But did you have anything else? Um, well, the
1: only other thing I have is, um, let me see, I've got, after page six of, uh, the first part of the story, there's a full page ad for a toy that I had when I was a kid. Oh, yeah? It was the Matt Mason, which was an astronaut toy, which came out in the 60s during the, uh, you know, the, the height of the, uh space program. And it was, the figure was wasn't like your modern action figure. It was kind of a rubber figure and it had wires inside so you could bend the arms and the legs. Hmm. and they had different accessories. Uh but I didn't have any of these. Well maybe the there was like a small space led. But uh um, I did have another like kind of capsule and uh uh, later on, they uh, also had another astronaut who was a black astronaut, but his costume was—he's got the you know astronaut outer you know astronaut suit, and then the the um, helmet kind of pops on and off. But the—I uh, forget who the uh, the uh, black astronaut's name was, but his was blue—all blue. All blue. While Matt Mason was the had the white astronaut um, spacesuit, you know, like uh, you know, ast- our astronauts wear.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna take a quick break, play a couple promos, and then we'll be back to uh, look at what else was in the book and what else was on the stands.
2: Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay. What do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper? Especially the old ones? Whoa, those things? Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually READ comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or, you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones.
1: Do you enjoy time travel in general, and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon... And your emails are always welcome at SupermanFanPodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape.
0: Alright, well, unfortunately, I'm going to be on my own for the rest of the show. Uh, Billy had a prior family commitment, and we knew we had a set window to record... I thought it would be enough time, but we spent a little more time on the story than I thought we would, uh, which is fine because it's a really great story. But unfortunately, it means that I will be flying solo for this segment. But if you want to read the story we just talked about, it has been reprinted twice, first in the DC's Greatest Imaginary Stories trade paperback and then in black and white in Showcase Presents World's Finest Volume 3. And both are really great trade paperbacks that I recommend. The Imaginary Stories trade also reprints The Death of Superman from Superman number 149. And that's a story written by Jerry Siegel with art by Kurt Swan. And Billy and I covered that on episode 259 of his show um, a little more than a year ago. So definitely seek that out. Um, As much as I love the Superman and Batman Brothers story, The Death of Superman is I think, hands down, my favorite imaginary story from DC's uh, pre-crisis era. Uh, but that imaginary stories trade also collects several other great imaginary stories, including uh, tales by Bill Finger and Otto Bender, uh, John Broom. Um, it's got the amazing story of Superman Red and Superman Blue by uh, Leo Dorfman, I believe it was. Just a really great trade that collects you know stories – from as far back as 1946, there's a there's a Captain Marvel story by Otto Bender and C.C. Beck that is considered um, really I think among the earliest imaginary stories in comics period. So it's it's just a really good trade paperback. Uh, but getting back into the this issue of World's Finance Comics, the only other feature in the book is a six-page Bob Haney Joe Kubert story titled Tank for Beach Green which is reprinted from a 1956 issue of Our Fighting Forces. So now it's time to head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com for a look at what else was on the stands. And the first thing I see is House of Mystery number 171 with the lead feature of the Dial H for Hero. And I think I mentioned before that I really appreciate the Dial H strip. Uh only a few more installments to go on that in House of Mystery before it switches back to being, before the comic, excuse me, switches back to being a horror and mystery anthology. Uh, Next up is Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 107. Notice how I said Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, Professor Allen. Uh, But this is an interesting issue because it contains a story titled The Captive of the Spider-Man, which has nothing to do with Spider-Man of the Marvel Universe, but it's still interesting given that Spider-Man and the entire Marvel line was really popular at this time. Uh, Next up is Superman number 202, which is an 80-page giant chock full of Bizarro stories, which means it's completely awesome. Um, A lot of the stories in that were originally from Adventure Comics, where Bizarro had his own backup for a short while, but there were a couple from Superman or Action, and I think... That Billy has covered those on his show, if you're interested in learning more. Uh, Batman number 197 has Batman, Batgirl, and Robin squaring off against Catwoman in one of her first appearances following the debut of the 1966 Batman show. Um, In fact, I want to say that this is Catwoman's first appearance in a Batman story since the TV show's premiere. Uh, The character had been gone from comics for more than a decade when she was used on the show... And her first appearance in comics after that actually was in a couple issues of Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane, of all places. Uh, But moving on, we've got Flash number 175, and this is a big one, folks. This issue has the race to the end of the universe, which is the second race between Superman and the Flash, following up on their first one from earlier in the year in Superman number 199. Uh, Brave and the Bold, number 75, is a crossover between Batman and the Spectre. It's by Bob Haney, so pay no no mind to the fact that the characters are from different Earths. And finally is Strange Adventures, number 207, which is the third appearance of Dead Man by Carmine Infantino, Jack Miller, and Neil Adams in What Makes a Corpse Cry. But that's it. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to Billy Hogan for coming on. Uh, Billy, I'm sorry that you missed out on this last leg of the show. Really would have liked to heard your uh, thoughts on what else was out from DC at this time. But I really do appreciate you coming on, and I'm really, really glad that you picked this story. Um, Like I told you off mic, I I had forgotten how much I loved this story until we covered it on the show. Uh, For you listeners, I really want to encourage you all to check out Billy's show, which is the Superman Fan Podcast. Uh, you can find that at the thesupermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. Billy's show isn't the longest-running Superman podcast, but he's put out more episodes than several others combined. Um, but don't let the size of the back catalog deter you from listening. Uh, from the beginning of the show, Billy's done a great job of keeping the show fresh and accessible to new listeners. So jump in anywhere, pick out some episodes that sound appealing, and check it out. Uh, once again, you can find the show at the thesupermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com. And you can also find it on iTunes and the Superman Podcast Network. But that's it for me. Uh, once more, Billy, thank you very much. Thank you to the listeners for joining us as well. And I will talk to you all next time. Goodbye.
2: brother So
1: on we go His welfare is my concern No is he
0: To bear We'll get there Thanks for listening to Superman and Batman. Hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Siegel Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening, and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman. Featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. closing music was the Hollies 1969 single, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. If you'd like to get this song, or any of the myriad of compilation albums on which it appears, the best way to do that is to head on over to 2 and click on the Amazon.com banner. Pick up a CD or digital download, and 2 Freaks will get a little cut from every purchase. It won't cost you anything extra, but does help ensure a steady stream of fine 2 freaks related podcasts.